Good morning. Welcome to the LH Evangelical Free Church. We're excited that you're here. My name's Ian. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, yeah, we're just excited that you're here and that it kind of looks springy out there. So hopefully it stays that way. A um, couple of quick announcements. Um, Northwood Share Dinner. TLEFC is preparing that dinner this week. Um, so if you want to help out, uh, they're making the dinner on Tuesday. Uh, contact JP Plotz. Her phone number is in the um, bulletin, or uh, you can shoot an email to, uh, to her there as well. Um, we are planning VBS for this summer, so we're excited for that. That's coming up. Um, our theme for this year is Living Water. Um, we're going to be in July 26th to the 29th in the evening, so watch for further information because that's coming. Um, on May 9th, we are having child dedications. Um, if you want more information or you have a child that needs dedicating, you should contact the church office. Um, and with that, I'm turning it over to the worship team. All right, good morning. We're going to stand and sing a song this morning to start out. Um, I don't know about you, but I woke up this morning thinking it was Monday morning, so I feel like I got a bonus day, which is excellent. So that puts you in a good mood right off the bat. Um, join with us as we sing this morning. One, two. Three, four.
You may be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. Those of you who may be new or don't know me, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to enter into a time of prayer now this morning. And as we do that, we want to especially remember um, Donna Russell, whose sister Linda passed away um, yesterday after a battle of Alzheimer's. So she is home with Jesus. We want to rejoice with that. We also want to remember her family. Let's pray together. Fathers, when we encounter death, we experience people close to us who die, we're reminded that this world is not as it should be, that it is broken, that all is not right. Uh, and we, we mourn the brokenness around us in this world, whether people who are physically hurting, physically sick, who are emotionally mourning the loss of a loved one like Donna this morning and like the rest of Linda's family. We pray that you would bring comfort and peace and rest to those who are in the midst of various kinds of pains and trials that come from living in this broken and fallen world. And yet, Father, we want to also rejoice that you did not leave us in this broken world, even though because of our own sin we deserve that brokenness. You did not leave us in that brokenness, but that you sent Jesus to come die on our behalf and to begin the process of setting all things right. And we look forward to the day when Jesus will return we will all be united with you in the new heavens and the new earth, all of us who trust and believe in you. God, help us to live this life now in light of that future glory. We look forward to that day and it will give us the motivation and the courage and the ability to live the life you have called us to live here and now. God, for people around the world, who are facing persecution and trial and difficulty, for you'd be with them and give them hope in light of that future. And for us here among our church family who are suffering and mourning and in pain, pray for us as well that you would give us a sense of your presence, a confidence and an assurance of what the future holds that... This world's not all there is, but there is coming a day when you will set all things right and there will be no more weeping, no more pain, no more tears. Help us to live in light of that day. Until that day comes, help us to live lives that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we continue worshiping. May we say with us and together we're going to sing together i just hope that you um, can appreciate the, the fullness of what that means um, a while ago i found this youtube video of it was bethel college they did a, a hymn and the, the choir gathered in a, a huge grain bin right like they they used it for the acoustics of the and it was phenomenal and the reason like 
it was so amazing. You had so many voices and so much sound, and you could hear all of that sound and all those people together in that moment. And I think, you know, when we worship together, even if we, if you aren't a singer, if you don't get a lot out of singing, you can at least close your eyes and listen to that sound around you. You know, those are the voices of God's people singing and lifting Him up. And what we're going to do this morning is just worship for a little while as a whole, as a church, as a community, and lift our voices together. So even if you're if you're not singing, use this moment to just kind of center yourself and, and listen to God's people singing His worship.
next song is always. And the first verse starts out, My foes are many, they rise against me. But I will hold my ground. I will not fear the war. I will not fear the storm. My help is on the way. My help is on the way. And the chorus is a cry out to God. Oh my God, he will not delay my refuge and strength always. Sing with us.
thankful that I don't have to go through even one day, even one hour without your presence. Lord, thank you that you are with us always, that we will not encounter anything that we will have to go through without you. Thank you for your presence with us.
come and to be Emmanuel, to be God with us. You do not leave us on our own, but you sent Jesus. You came to earth for us, out of your love for us, even while we were still your enemies. And you are here with us. You now come through the power of your Holy Spirit. You live with us. Let's never forget what you came for us, what you are with us now through your Spirit. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One quick note before we really get started. If you have a bulletin and you see the outline in there, we're going to get like halfway through that outline, just so you know. Right? So if I'm like 28 minutes in and you're like, he's like not even halfway done, like, don't panic. We're not going to go the whole way. All right. So we'll get to that half next week. All right. So going to get your brain going a little bit this morning. Got a little question for you. If you have a hot cup of coffee and a little thing of creamer, your goal is in 15 minutes to have that coffee be as cold as possible. I don't know why you'd want that, but just if that was your goal, the question is, should you add the creamer right away or should you wait till the last possible minute to add the creamer? Your goal is to make the coffee as cold as possible. Add the creamer right away or wait till the last possible minute. The answer, it turns out, that if you want the coffee as cold as possible, you should add the creamer at the last possible minute. Because hot liquids radiate heat faster than warm liquids, and so if you wet, let the coffee stay hot, it'll radiate heat faster, and then when you dump the creamer at the end, it'll drop the temperature lower. Now, the reason I ask you that question is not because I want to give you advice on adding creamer to your coffee. The fact of the matter is, if you add creamer to your coffee, I'm already silently judging you. Like, <laughs> coffee's not meant to be consumed that way. And so I don't, I'm not trying to give you advice on how to do that. I asked that question because apparently it's one of the questions that Elon Musk used to ask employees who are implying, applying at SpaceX. SpaceX. We're looking to get hired. He asked them that question, not because he wanted to know if they had the technical knowledge to actually answer the question, but because he wanted to see how they thought through that kind of question. And like, that's kind of, a, there's like a whole bunch of questions on the internet you can find, like people ask, I'm on these lines, like, how many windows are there in New York City, or like, and like the goal is not to get the answer, but to just see how people think. Because the ability to think critically about a problem was valuable at an organization like SpaceX. And so Musk wanted to see how a prospective employee would handle a problem like this. And I just find like the different methods and the different ways that different organizations and companies use to find potential employees, I find those ways fascinating. Because like you want to find the right people, but you can't just come out and say like, are you a good critical thinker? Like no one in an interview is going to say no to that question. So you have to like find a way to draw that out of them. Like choosing the right people for a company is an important decision. And as we come to the passage this morning in Luke, we see Jesus kind of had to make that kind of decision. Through his healing, through his teaching, 
Jesus has amassed a group of followers, a group of disciples who are committed to following him. But now from among those disciples, he's going to choose 12 of them that he's going to call apostles. But what we see is Jesus walks through this process of choosing his apostles, that he will not do things according to conventional wisdom. In fact, we'll see that Jesus really is countercultural in how he goes about selecting his apostles. If we back up for a minute, we've been walking through this book of Luke, and we've come through a series of conflicts that Jesus has had with the Pharisees and the tax collectors. So they've fought over things like whether Jesus' disciples should fast or not. And they've fought about whether Jesus should spend time with sinners or not. Whether Jesus has the ability to forgive sins or not. They've fought over what is appropriate to do on the Sabbath. And these conflicts have been escalating over time and they've been increasing in intensity to the point that the last word we read in Luke before this passage is, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So at this point, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're out to get Jesus. Right? Like The thought of having him crucified probably hasn't come into their minds yet. They're probably not quite there. Right? But it's becoming clear. They're going to try to do something to stop Jesus from proclaiming his message. And so like if Jesus' message is going to continue to advance after Jesus is no longer able to advance that message, then he needs to build a team who can carry on his message after he's gone. So that's what we see happening here in Luke chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 12. So Jesus has amassed followers, he's amassed disciples, but now he's going to choose 12 of them to be apostles and he's going to, over the rest of his ministry, intentionally invest in and train those disciples throughout his ministry. So starting in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, we read, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. So this, this word apostle... It's a word for a person who is sent out by someone with the authority to speak for that person. You can think of an ambassador today being sent out by a country with the authority to sign treaties on behalf of a country. Or someone who's been given power of attorney for someone else to sign documents on their behalf. That's what this idea of apostle is. Someone who carries the authority of the one who sent them. And it's noticeable, too, that he's going to choose 12 and that now should sound familiar because it's the number of tribes there were in Israel. There's a direct connection between number of apostles and number of tribes of Israel. And the message is that Jesus, by choosing 12 apostles, is in the process of building and creating a new people of God. The 12 tribes of Israel were the people of God of the Old Testament. And now Jesus is building and creating a new people of God through these apostles. And then Luke gives us the names, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Elpheus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. 
what we see from these verses is that like, Jesus does not go about choosing men in a way that makes sense to the world. In fact, Jesus' selection of apostles doesn't obey the rules of worldly wisdom. But instead, Jesus' selection of apostles was countercultural. Right? That's counterintuitive. And it was countercultural, counterintuitive for two reasons. Like first, his selection process was countercultural. The method he used was countercultural. And then also the results, that the people he ended up choosing were countercultural. So let's first look at his countercultural method. As we said at the beginning, like choosing the right people to join a team or a company is an important decision. That's why the hiring process is often so extensive for any company. There's applications, and there's resumes, and there's cover letters, and there's background checks, and there's multiple interviews. The process of hiring someone, as any of you who have done it would know, it's like, it can be an arduous process. The other day I had a phone call, conversation with one of my friends from college who, he lives in Texas now, and been tasked by his church to being on the search committee for their, like for a new senior pastor. And so he just called, and he's like wondering, like, what did the process look like for me as I came here? Like, what, what do we do? What did our search committee do in bringing me here? And so I think it's really like all the steps I went through in applying and interviewing and candidating here. Like, I'm just struck by like, there are a lot of steps in that process. And it's a long process, not helped by the fact that we were walking through COVID at the same time, but it was still like a long process. And like none of those things we do, that they did in bringing me here, are, are bad. Right? None of those things are wrong. And in fact, like, I might be a little biased, but I think our search committee did a great job in who they chose to be the next <laughs> senior pastor. Right? So it's not, it's not wrong to do any of those things. But it is striking how like, Jesus doesn't do any of those things when he chooses his apostles. He doesn't conduct interviews with weird questions about creamer and coffee. He doesn't pour over resumes to find the most qualified candidates. He doesn't make a list of pros and cons of each of the disciples and then choose from that. He doesn't do background checks. Instead, Luke tells us, he spent the night in prayer and then made his choice. Over and over again in Luke, when Jesus has a big decision to make, or he's got a big event in front of him, Luke shows us Jesus praying. We've already seen Jesus pray before his baptism. We've seen Jesus pray when he has to get away from the crowd because they're starting to crowd in on him, and he gets away to spend time with his Father. And we see it again here in this passage. Like here, not only does Luke mention that Jesus prays, but he says he prays all night long. It's the only place in the New Testament where we see an all-night prayer vigil. That Jesus spent the entire night praying to God before he chose his apostles. That was his search process. He didn't do everything he could to make sure he found the most qualified men for the job. Instead, he did everything he could to make sure he found the most God-called and God-appointed men for the job. There's a lot for us to learn in that when we have a big decision to make. There's nothing wrong with using human wisdom and methods to aid us when we make decisions. 
as long as that wisdom and those methods are secondary to and subservient to prayer. When faced with a big decision, our first course of action should be to run to the Father in prayer, like asking for guidance in that decision. Not just a quick 30-second, like, God, give me wisdom prayer before you jump back into using your own earthly wisdom. But extended periods of time in prayer. Giving, giving God time to work in your mind, right, to lead you to right decisions. Like, I don't know exactly what Jesus' night of prayer looked like, exactly what he prayed, but it certainly wasn't just, uh, Father, who should I pick? And then God gave him the answer. Because right? that would not have taken all night. Instead, I imagine that like, God brought different disciples to Jesus' mind. Right? He guided Jesus through the process of finding the right men to call to be apostles. Like, oftentimes, when, at least when I pray, like, I'm just looking for an obvious answer. Like, God, give me an answer, clear as day, right off the bat. Like, either speak or show me very clearly what that answer is. But that's not how God works a lot of the time. A lot of time, God works by like, directing our thoughts, by giving us, bringing certain things to mind that help us make the decision he would have us make. Right? Or by directing our affections, right? by making us love and value and appreciate things that we didn't before, that are more in line with his will. And that's how God often works in prayer. But that only works if we allow the time to sit with our Father and let Him work in our hearts and in our minds like we are attentive to God's response. And as we, we bring, as we spend that time in prayer, right, God may bring to mind reasons for making a certain choice. Right? And that, those reasons may look a lot like human wisdom sometimes. But if you've spent the time in prayer with the Father, then you can be confident and know right, that it's God who's leading you to that decision and not just your human wisdom on its own. And there may be other times when God leads you to a decision that doesn't make sense to the world, that doesn't accord with human wisdom. And that was certainly the case with Jesus' selection of apostles. Not only was Jesus' method by praying, not only that countercultural, but the results of his process were countercultural as well. Right? The people he ended up choosing were countercultural. Before Jesus chose these men to be apostles, like they came from a pretty wide variety of backgrounds. But none of those backgrounds made them an obvious choice to be apostles and eventually leaders of a movement that would reshape world history. Like earlier in Luke, we looked at how he called four fishermen, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, to be, a, to be disciples. Now he's calling them to be apostles. And fishermen is not exactly a profession you would expect Jesus to call followers from. Especially when he's eventually going to charge these apostles with going out into the world to make their own disciples. Right? Fishermen's not the first job that jumps to mind for obvious candidates. And in fact, in, in Acts chapter 4 we read, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. 
They took note that these men had been with Jesus. Peter and John are unschooled. They're ordinary. They're not the obvious choice for leaders of a future worldwide religious movement. But Jesus chose them. It's easy to feel inadequate for me, right? To feel like I'm not cut out for a task. That you don't have the skills needed to participate in the mission of Jesus. But the apostles didn't have those skills either. They were inadequate as well. But then they spent time with Jesus, and that time with Jesus made them adequate. Oswald Chambers says, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. If you feel like a nobody, if you feel ill-equipped to do what God has called you to do, you're in good company. The next step forward then is to spend time with Jesus. Now, see, we can't do that the same way the apostles did, walking with him in a physical way day after day. But we have his word. He invites us to come to him in prayer. And as we do that, by spending time with him through his word, through prayer, he will equip us for every good work he has called us to do so that he can show his power and not our own ability. And so, fishermen are on the list of apostles. That's not an obvious choice. But maybe an even less obvious choice was Matthew, who was a tax collector. We said several times in Luke already, like, tax collector is the most hated profession among the Jews. Tax collectors were seen by the Jews as people who had sold out their fellow countrymen. They sold them out to the Romans for the sake of personal gain. So choosing a tax collector was not a wise choice is Jesus wanted to build credibility with the Jewish people. But it could be seen as a shrewd political move. That maybe Jesus is trying to curry favor with the Romans for his little movement. So he's, he's choosing followers that are either unassuming, like fishermen, or who are downright friendly with the Romans, like tax collectors. Right, up to this point, all of Jesus' conflicts have been with the Pharisees and the, ruler, the teachers of the law. Right? He, he hadn't really had any conflict or issue with the Romans up till now. And so you could theorize, right, that maybe this is intentional. Like maybe Jesus is being very careful trying to avoid any conflict with the Romans. And that would be a fine theory until you get a couple steps further down the list and you come to the name of Simon, who was called the Zealot. That the zealots were a revolutionary group bent on overthrowing the Romans and returning Israel to independence. So if you're Jesus looking to avoid raising the suspicion of the Romans, then choosing a zealot was not a good choice. So neither of those choices really make sense. Furthermore, like choosing a zealot and a tax collector together was an especially bad choice if Jesus wanted to ensure 
His band of twelve who would be together day after day would live in harmony. The zealots and the tax collectors were on opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to their opinions about the Romans. The tax collectors had sold out their fellow Jews in order to serve the Romans. Whereas the zealots were bent on overthrowing the Romans, of kicking them out of Israel, until the zealots would hate anyone who worked with the Romans. The zealots would hate tax collectors even more than the average Jew would during this time. Tax collectors and zealots don't mix. Like here's the situation, right? We have a zealot and a tax collector start following a carpenter turned rabbi. Like that sounds more like the start of a joke than the start of a movement that will change the world. But such is the power of Jesus that he could take this odd mix of uneducated, ordinary men from diverse backgrounds and mold them into men that would go on to change the course of world history. Such is the power of Jesus that men with vastly different political views were able to be united in following Jesus. For both Matthew and Simon the Zealot, what they believed about Jesus became infinitely more important than what they believed about the role of the Roman government. As our world becomes increasingly politically polarized, like we, as followers of Jesus, have an opportunity to proclaim that there are things that matter more than politics. That we can gather together as God people. That we can love one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. That we can fellowship together. Even when we come from different backgrounds, even when we have different political beliefs, even when we see the role of government differently, we can come together because we are united by something bigger than any of those things. We are united together by following Jesus. And what we believe about Jesus and our desire to follow him is far more important than our opinion than any of those other things. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot lived together day after day following Jesus for three years. And after his death, they were united together with the rest of the apostles in spreading the good news about Jesus throughout the world. And the Bible gives us no record of their differences ever being a problem. I mean, I'm sure they probably talked. I'm sure they disagreed at times. But their different views never stopped them from following Jesus together side by side. Matthew wrote one of the longest books in the Bible. He had plenty of time to air any grievances he wanted to. But he doesn't do it. They set aside their differences and were united in following Jesus. We we as Christians and as a church, we have an opportunity to proclaim truth to the world by emulating their example. So the fishermen, they were unexpected because fishermen didn't make logical choice. Matthew and Simon were unexpected because they were on opposite ends of the spectrum and like choosing them together seemed like a recipe for disaster. And then like most of the other apostles in this list, like 
we know shockingly little about. Like, for men who would go on to reshape world history, it's amazing how little we know about most of them. Other than being listed in these lists of 12 apostles, like, Bartholomew is never mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. Like, all we know about Philip is that he came from the same city as Peter and Andrew. Like, you would think Jesus, right, if he was really trying to start a movement that would become known, like, he would have chosen more notable and impressive people. But he didn't. He chose men who would rely on God to shape them, like, to rely on God to make them capable of doing what he has called them to do. But of course, there's one more apostle on the list that we haven't mentioned, one we do know something about, and that's Judas Iscariot, the one who became a traitor, the one who would eventually kill him. So like, after an all-night prayer session, Jesus comes down, he chooses 12 apostles, and he chooses one who would betray him to death. Again, if you were just on an objective scale going to evaluate that search process, you would say Jesus failed. Like, sure, Peter and John and Matthew, they do some cool stuff, they turn out all right. But, like, choosing someone who betrays you to death should be like auto fail, you would think. But that's not the case. In fact, in John, chapter 6, John tells us this. Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Then a little later in chapter 6, John says, or Jesus says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning from the moment he selected Judas, that he knew that Judas would betray him. Yet he chose him anyway. Jesus chose Judas because of betrayal, because the betrayal of Judas was essential to Jesus' plan. Because the most countercultural thing about Jesus was not ultimately the method he used to choose apostles. The most countercultural thing about Jesus was not the men that he chose to be his apostles. The most countercultural thing about Jesus was not even like his ethical teachings, which we'll look at next week, which were indeed very countercultural. But none of those things were the most countercultural thing about Jesus. The most countercultural thing about Jesus was what he came to do. He came to be a king. Yet he doesn't establish a mighty earthly kingdom. He receives none of the reverence befitting a king. And instead he's ridiculed and mocked and scorned. He will have no throne here on earth. Jesus comes as God with us. God here on earth. And he didn't come in superhuman form like Hercules. He came in the form of a helpless baby. He grew up submissive to his parents. The all-wise God of the universe was submissive to his parents. He was tempted and tried just as we are. He experienced all the frailties of human existence. Jesus came to display God's love for the world. 
Yet instead of loving him back, the world hated and rejected him. Jesus never did anything wrong. Right? He never sinned. Yet instead of being praised, he would face endless accusations, and eventually he would die a sinner's death between two criminals on a cross. But none of those things show that Jesus' methods failed. Instead, it was through this apparent failure that Jesus would win the most countercultural countercultural of victories. It was through the betrayal of Jesus, of Judas, and Jesus' death on the cross, that God's love would be most perfectly displayed. Because it was through that death on the cross that God made it possible for each of us to be forgiven of our sins, to receive eternal life. It was through the betrayal of Judas and Jesus' death on the cross that Jesus' sinless life was vindicated when God raised him from the dead three days later. It was through the betrayal of Judas and Jesus' death on the cross that Jesus is most clearly seen as king. Not over some temporary earthly kingdom, but as king of the universe. When after his resurrection... Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated now at the right hand of the Father as he reigns over all creation. Jesus willingly chose as an apostle someone who would betray him, who would cause him to suffer and to be crucified. Jesus made that choice knowing full well what he was doing because he loved you. So that by believing in him, you can spend eternity with him as a joyful subject of that eternal kingdom. Increasingly, in our world, like one of the most countercultural things you can do is confess your belief in Jesus. It's not easy. It's becoming less and less popular. It doesn't guarantee an easy life here on earth. That is, we'll see next week, it all but guarantees that you will at times be hated and rejected But Jesus says that that rejection and persecution is worth rejoicing over because it means that your reward is great in heaven. That you have an eternal reward that is far greater than anything that this world can offer. So if you're here or you're watching and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to do so. It may seem hard, it may seem strange. It will certainly be countercultural. But it's also the best decision that you can make. If you have questions about like, what that means, what that looks like, I'd invite you to talk to me. If you're here and you have trusted Jesus, then I just invite you to take some time to reflect on the fact that from the very beginning, Jesus knew what he was doing in selecting Judas. He knew what he was getting himself into. He knew the pain and the suffering that would come at the end of his life. And he willingly stepped into that for you. Because he loves you and wanted to make a way for you to be made right with God. And now, just as Jesus has transformed his band of uneducated, untrained apostles into men who would carry out his mission throughout the world, 
He's at work in you through the power of the Holy Spirit to equip you and enable you to do your part in carrying out the mission that He has given you. No matter your background, no matter your skill set, no matter what areas of life you struggle in, Jesus has a role for you to play in advancing His kingdom. And He will equip you in all the ways you need to carry out that role. The kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus, is always advanced through God at work in the lives of everyday people. It started with the apostles and it continues with us. So let us be faithful as followers of Jesus in carrying forward his mission and telling people about Jesus and serving and loving people in Jesus' name. And as we consider what that looks like for each of us individually, we ponder, like, how do I advance the kingdom? Let's not rely on earthly wisdom, but let us, like Jesus, start with prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the way you work, not only in sending your son Jesus, but then also raising up these 12 men, these 12 apostles who serve, as Ephesians said, as the foundation of the church. Following Jesus' death would go out into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world. As they raised up followers of Jesus, they charged them as well to go and tell more people about Jesus. And because of that, that each of us is ultimately here today, that each of us has heard the name of Jesus and knows the good news of Jesus. And because of the work first of Jesus, but then of those 12 apostles. Thank you for the way you worked in their lives to make them capable, to make them able to do what you called them to do. Thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for the long list of faithful people who have passed down the good news of Jesus from generation to generation. God, I pray that you would show each of us what role we had to play in being the next link in the chain as the gospel gets passed on to a new generation. Show us how to faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus to our neighbors, to our friends, to our kids, to our coworkers, to everyone we encounter who doesn't know Jesus. God, as you work in each of our lives to reveal that to us, would your kingdom advance here in Three Lakes and throughout this region? Would people come to know you? Because each of us gathered here was faithful to proclaim the good news of Jesus. He came knowing what lied ahead for him knowing that he would suffer and be crucified and die. 
but he did it for us so that our sins could be forgiven when we place our faith in him. But we never grow tired of preaching that truth to ourselves, but we never grow tired of proclaiming that truth to others. Would our world be changed because of the work you're doing in the lives of people here and in the lives of the people throughout this area? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as you go, go being the people who Jesus has called to advance his kingdom, following in the line of the apostles. You are dismissed. One, two, three, four. Thank you.